glad you guys are here. And I, I got to be honest, uh, there are every now and again, I get really, really, well, I get more excited than I normally do about, about teaching. But today is one of those days I've been really uh, looking forward to sharing what I think um, is pretty, pretty awesome stuff. Not because I thought of it. That's certainly not the case. Those of you that know me know that that's not the case. Uh, but more because this story is amazing. Um, so just to fill some of you in who maybe are new with us, we're in week two of the series on worship. Again, it doesn't really have a title. It's sort of this, these brackets. And we talked last week about a couple of different things. One is that worship is not just singing. When we think about worship, oftentimes it's in the context of singing at a church. Uh, and then that's the worship piece. And usually, or I shouldn't say usually, sometimes it's talked about where worship kind of sets up the message, which is really the important part. Uh, and we want to sort of debunk that idea because we don't think it's very good theology. Uh, worship is something bigger than that. It's not just singing. We talked about the idea that worship isn't an event. It's not something that we attend and that, that it's this external thing that we experience out here and then have something to say about. We critique it or we say we like it or we don't like it or the, it was too loud or whatever. That's not worship. Um, singing can be an expression of worship, but worship is something far deeper than that. Uh, it's not an event. And we talked about the idea that all of humanity worships. When you, when you say the word worship, I'm guessing that your mind immediately goes to a religious or spiritual context. And we want to say that worship is not something that just religious people do. But worship is actually something that all of humanity does because it's hardwired into us by the God who made us. And the question isn't whether or not you will worship, but what will you worship? And we explored some of that last week. Because really, as you talk about worship and as you press into this idea, we begin to see that worship is a... Uh, it, 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 it asks the question or it gets at the issue of what is that on the seat or the throne of our hearts? What is that thing that defines us, gives us life, uh, gives us significance, meaning? Those are the things we worship. And that can be God in some instances and it can be other things in other cases. Uh, what's the source of our life or identity? And I think that humanity has been asking this question in a hundred different ways for thousands and thousands of years. So today we want to explore in this uh, beautiful, amazing story in Genesis chapters 25 to 32, and we're going to read the entire, th I'm just kidding, we're not going to read the entire thing. We're going to get some pieces of Jacob's life, and I want to press into this, uh, his life, because I think as we do, we begin to see some things that, that really flush out the foundation that we laid last week. Because if worship is an issue of the heart, what we begin to see in the life of Jacob are some things that really get at what does it mean to be human and what lies deep within the human heart. So I am so excited about this. I want to start in Genesis chapter 25. So if you have your Bibles turned there, I want to make a couple observations about this guy, Jacob, and his life and his story. And the first is this. If we're going to talk about worship, I think we have to understand that worship is connected to identity. Worship is connected to identity and really the question of, do you know your name? Do you know who you are? So let's pick it up in Genesis 25, verse 24. It says this, When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. This is Rebecca it's talking about. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. <laughs> Which is probably a little unfortunate for this guy, right? I mean, he is like, he is the serious sweater man, you know? Like, a hairy man. It's like they give birth to a 30-year-old, right? He comes out, and it's like, whoa, man! Will Ferrell just happened to come out here. 
I borrowed that from my friend Steve Weens. He, that was a funny joke he told. I stole that. So, Steve, if you ever listen to this, I just want to give you credit. But Esau comes out, and he's all hairy, and they name him Esau because his name actually means hairy. Uh, not hairy like Harry met Sally, but hairy like, whoa, dude, hot wax. <laughs> After this, his brother comes out who was grasping Esau's heel. So they named him Jacob. The name Jacob actually means heel, which might not be very significant if you didn't know Hebrew culture. In Hebrew, to say heel is an idiom, and it also means deceiver or liar. So poor Jacob, we got Esau on one hand, the hairy guy, And then you got Jacob who comes out grasping the heel of his brother and they name him heel, which means deceiver or liar. So in the first two two verses, we get a glimpse into these people's names and what they mean. Of course, back then, names meant way more than they do now, but let's just keep going in the story. Verses 27 and 28 give us a further glimpse into who these people become. Verse 27 says, the boys grew up, oh, I'm sorry, verse 26 After this, our brother came out grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. Verse 27, the boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country. Let me translate for you. Esau became a man's man. This guy is the, he's, he's legit. He's like Braveheart, you know, carries around a club. Uh, he's a man's man. He's the man of the bow and the arrow. He shoots stuff. He kills stuff. He's a man's man, right? We know this kind of guy. He's the Marlboro man, you know? Uh, he's the man of the open country. They didn't have Marlboros back then, but you know what I'm getting at. This is who Esau is, and this is what it says about him. Then it says, Jacob... While Jacob was a quiet man staying among the tents, translated, (laughs) Jacob liked to stay home with the women, is essentially what this is saying. Because, of course, in this culture, the men went out, they were the hunter, the gatherers, they farmed, they did their things, but Jacob likes to stay home in the tents with the ladies, So he's a little bit more effeminate. He's not quite the man's man that his brother is. He's a little more, um, you know, you know what I'm talking about, right? Uh, So this is Jacob. This is Esau. Um, It goes on in this story to say that uh, Esau's father, Isaac, loves wild game. does, Does Esau like to shoot bows and arrows? Does he like to kill things? Does he like to slay these things and kill them? I don't know. But I do know that his dad loves wild game. And I do know what a son would do for his father's approval. Do we know that Jacob loves to stay home in the tents, to be with the ladies, to do the things that... Do we know that for a fact? No, we don't know anything about this except for what the author tells us. But I do know what a son would do for his mother's approval to have the affection and love and care of a mom. We sometimes maybe even play into these roles that maybe aren't us, but we do these things to live into the expectations of our parents. And how does this go? How does this play itself out in humanity? We've seen this one many, many times. I grew up playing hockey, and there was a kid named Colin McKenzie. 
Uh, Colin was a, uh, he was a bit like Esau. I mean, he was, a big, he was a big kid when we were all little kids. He was the fastest skater on our team. He had an absolute rocket of a wrist shot. If you're a hockey player, he was like Marion Gabrick. The kid could let a, a snapshot go from anywhere in the offensive zone and score. He broke a kid's arm one time with his, with his wrist shot, like hit him right in the arm, snapped his arm. I mean, this kid was fast, he was good, he was really talented, and, and he scored all kinds of goals. His dad was one of the most driving, um, uh, uh, sort of, uh, you know, fathers who, who pushed his expectations on his kid. And we would know when Colin's dad was happy, because if Colin played a great game and Colin scored some goals, his dad would be all smiles. But if Colin didn't play well, his dad was just a cantankerous, mean old man. And he would yell at Colin and do it in front of all kinds of people. And he had all these expectations that he needed to do this and he needed to be that and he needed to be successful and he needed to score and he needed to be the best. Why? Oftentimes it's because of insecurities of a father or a mother. But th- here's how this story ended. At least the last time I heard from Colin McKenzie, I heard this. Colin McKenzie was found totally bucked naked, riding a moped, hammered out of his gourd around in a circle in front of his house at an intersection. He got arrested. Totally just stark naked. Just bombed. Now, of course I'm reading into the text here, but I wonder what a life trying to live up to the expectations of parents that you can never live up to the expectations of looks like. What does that feel like? Of course, none of us know what that's like. Uh, turn to Genesis chapter 27. This is the, continues the story. We have Jacob and Esau, brothers Isaac and Rebekah are the parents. If you know anything about Jewish history and culture, a father would bless the oldest son. And it was this ritual that happened. There was actually five parts to this ritual. A command was given by the father. Then uh, um, a... Uh, um, a command, and then he would identify the son, and then he would eat a meal with the son, and then the son would kiss the father, and then the, the, the father would bless the son. We actually see this playing out with, with Jacob. But Esau is about to give the blessing to, uh, or Isaac is about to give the blessing to Esau, and he sends Esau out into the field. He says, go and get some wild game because you know how much I love this stew or the meat that you make for me. So go and catch something, kill it, bring it back and make me something that I love. So Esau goes out, Rebecca the mom overhears this and says, Jacob, come here. She gathers Jacob in and she says, I want you to steal your brother's blessing. I want you to dress up like your brother and go in there. And Jacob says, I'm not sure this is such a good idea. Wouldn't a curse fall on me? And his mom says, don't worry about it. If a curse falls, may it fall on me. We pick it up in verse 18 of chapter 27. It says, this, he went to his father and he said, my father, yes, my son, he answered, who is it? Jacob says to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you've told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. Isaac asked his son, how did you find it so quickly, my son? He's, kind of, he's, he's catching on here. The Lord your God gave me success, he replied. And then Isaac said to Jacob, come near so I can touch you my son, to know whether or not you are really my son Esau or not. Jacob went close to his father Isaac, who touched him, 
Uh, if you know the story, uh, don't know the story, his mom put like, uh, gave him a bunch of hair, you know, because this is Harry Esau. So the father touches him and he says, this is the voice of Jacob, but the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau. And so he blessed him. Uh, uh, he says, are you really, are you really my son Esau for the second time? And Jacob says, I am, he replies. Then he said, my son, bring me some of your game to eat so that I may give you my blessing. Jacob brought it and he ate. He brought some wine and he drank and his father said to him, come here, my son, kiss me. So we have the, ident- we have the, the command, the identification, the meal, the kiss. So he went and he kissed him, and with that, Isaac caught the smell of his clothes and blessed him and said, Ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the heavens due and the earth's riches and abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed, and those who bless you be blessed. Jacob, twice in the story, two different times he is asked, point blank by his father, what is your name? Who are you? And he answers Esau. He says he's his brother. He can't answer the question. He doesn't know. He's not aware of his own identity. There is is significant confusion surrounding Jacob, who he is, and ultimately who defines him. In the midst of this, in a moment, Jacob is caught up and tangled up in this web of his mother's expectations, mother's wishes for a son, his father's inability to see him, and his own confusion about who he is, and ultimately, who or what is on the throne of his heart, who or what defines him, what gives him life, what is the source for Jacob. I wonder how many of us live here where we have gone through an entire life. And maybe in a moment of total and utter honesty, we can't answer that question, who are you? What is your name? Not the one your parents gave you, but what is your name? Follow the story in Genesis 32 flip over a couple. Jacob has fled the scene. He's left Esau. He stole his birthright. Esau wants to kill him now. So he leaves. He goes to his his uncle Laban and he meets two gals, Rachel and Leah. He works seven years for Laban because he falls in love with Rachel. Pick it up in verse uh, 23 of chapter 32. Says then, after he sent them, I'm sorry. uh, Did I skip something here? Genesis 32 is not, the, not what I just told you about, but, oh, oh, oh I, 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 I remember, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm totally confused, but now I'm back. Uh, <laughs> so Jacob, he, he goes, he, he visits, <laughs> he goes to visit Laban, he gets Rachel uh, and, and Leah to marry him, and he leaves the, that space, he leaves Laban to go back to Esau because he wants to basically reconcile. And this is where we pick up this story. He's going back to Esau. This is verse 23 of chapter 32. After he sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that, uh, when the man 
saw that he could not overpower him. He touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched and he wrestled as he wrestled with the man. And then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go until you bless me. And the man asked him, what is your name? And Jacob answers, Jacob. And the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob. And the Hebrew actually translates, you can't be blessed with a name like Jacob, <laughs> is essentially what he says. He says, you will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. The word Israel means to struggle with God and with man and, and not be overcome. So here's Jacob. He has everything that means anything to him. All of the different things that have given him significance and life and, and, and defined who he is, his possessions, his livestock, his wives, his children, all of it's there. And then Jacob sends all of the things that have ever defined him as a person across the river. In Hebrew, the word Hebrew actually means to cross over. So the, 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 the dominating understanding of what it means to be Hebrew is to understand it's a people who have crossed over. So you see this playing out in the scriptures, the Red Sea and other places. This group crosses over from one place to the other. And here you have Jacob. All of the things that have defined him are sent across the river. And here he stands, naked and alone, while everything that's defined him is on the other side. He has not crossed over. If you're reading the story with Jewish eyes, this is what the author is telling you. And there he stands, about to experience the most significant moment in his life. He is on the precipice of worship where the seed of his heart, what's been there, is about to be exposed because it's not until Jacob wrestles with God that he understands who he is. It's not until Jacob goes head to head with God until he understands his name. Friends, we can wrestle with all kinds of things in life and we can ask them to tell us who we are. We can ask them to define us. We can ask them to give us meaning and significance and value and worth. We can ask all kinds of things to say that to us and I guarantee you we will always be left wanting more because until we wrestle with God, we cannot know who and what God made us to be. We cannot know our names. Parents, you have a really, really, really important role when you name your children and you raise them, but hear me very clearly, it is not your responsibility to define your children. It is your responsibility to help uncover and help bring to the surface who they are and what their name is. You may have given them name X or name Y, but what is their name is a different question than what do you call them by. You see what I'm saying? Your role is crucial because you help children understand who made them and who they are. Until we wrestle with God and we come face to face with him, we will always be left wanting because it's God who defines and creates and gives you your name. Worship is about identity. Because until we know our names, we ask all kinds of other things to define us and give us life and significance and value and meaning. And those things sit on the throne of our hearts and they say, this is who you are, this is what you mean, this is what life is about. 
Worship is not an event. It's not something that we do. It's something that happens here. And it's connected to do you know your name? I think if we go on in the story, we find that worship is also connected to, our, uh, to our, not only our identity, but our vision. And really the question, if, if, it, if the question for identity was do you know your name, the question for this vision piece is does anybody see me? Does anybody see me? May I suggest to you that the haunting question of humanity throughout the ages from Adam to you, from Eve to you, the haunting question of humanity is do you see me? Not like, hey, do you see that person over there? But do you see them? Look at Genesis 27, verse 1 and verse 18. Give us a look into this. And the scriptures play with this idea all throughout the Torah and the rest of the Old Testament. When Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see, he called for Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son... Esau is standing right in front of him, and he can't see him. Look at verse 18. Jacob dresses up like his brother, and he goes with the food his mom made him. And his father says, he went to his father and he said, My father, and his father says, Yes, my son, who is it? Jacob is standing right in front of his father, and he can't see him. Now, get a, get a, push aside the actual physical fact that he's blind. Okay, because oftentimes in story, you have these currents going on and these underlying things that are happening in this language that's being used. And this is exactly what's being said here. Jacob is standing right in front of his own father and he can't see him. Turn to Genesis 29, flip over a couple chapters. Now, this is, <clears throat> this is Jacob back to where I, I thought I was uh, supposed to go earlier. Jacob flees Esau, he goes to Laban and he meets this gal, Rachel. He falls in love with her and he says, I'm going to work for seven years to, to, to marry this gal. We pick it up in verse 16 of, of chapter 29. It says, now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The, the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I will work for you for seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Isn't that the truth, fellas? You know, when you're really, when you're just smitten, when you're just whipped, it's like time doesn't even exist, right? Huh? <sighs> I remember that. So Jacob says to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed with her. I want to lie with her. There are kids in the room. You know what that means. 22. So Laban brought together all of the people in the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter, Leah, and gave her to Jacob. And Jacob lay with her. Kids in the room. And Laban gave his servant girl Zilpah to his daughter and her ma- as her maidservant and when morning came there w- and when morning came there was Leah so Jacob says to Laban what on earth is going on here okay just pause on for a second that this is the bible and it's a bible story and it's old and it's so far removed from us are you getting what's being said here Jacob works seven years for Rachel. He wants to marry Rachel. He's got his eye on Rachel. He's really got the hots for Rachel. He's got this thing going. He says, okay, I've worked my seven years now. I'd like to marry Rachel. He marries Rachel, and Laban sneakily 
gives Leah to him and he sleeps with her and wakes up the next morning and says, who are you? Ladies in the room, as I tell the story, what goes on in your heart? How does that make you feel? Are there any emotions that just come like right off the top of your head? Just shout them out, ladies in the room. Projection? Rejection. I thought, I was like, okay, we could go philosophical. Um, I like rejection, yeah. Rejection. What else? Unknown. Are you blind? Undesirable. Gang, listen to what the story is telling us. Leah is right in front. I mean, as in front of as you can get, okay? Okay? Right in front of Jacob, and he can't see her. I mean, this is of epic proportion because the deepest cry of the human heart is, Do you see me? And to be there and not seen is the ultimate expression of the denial of, of a self, a created being of God. And again, I want to suggest that we've been asking this question from the beginning. Do you see me? There's this great, uh, great scene, if you've seen The Notebook before. I'll admit I watched it. It's actually one of the better chick flicks out there, okay? Say, so, yeah, a couple of guys in the room. Woo, let's have a notebook party tonight, okay? So Ryan Gosling, you know, oh, Ryan. He's the main character in the, in the film. Um, what's his name? Noah. Noah thank you, ladies. Uh, and the guy up here. <laughs> And the girl's name, what, Allie is her name. Uh, so Noah falls in love with Allie, just, just a, you know, fireworks, right? And she leaves and goes away, never to be found again, never to be seen again. And Noah turns his attention to someone else. And uh, you can imagine what goes on in that. And there's this scene where uh, that they, they cut to what, what just happened, we don't see, but we know what happened. And she gets up and she gets a couple of cocktails and comes back from the kitchen and lays down and she says to him, Noah, what do you want? And he is in a completely different land, right? He says, I don't know what I want. And she says these haunting words. A woman knows when a man looks at her and sees somebody else. This isn't just something that happened in Eden. It's not just something that happened in this story. It's a question that humanity has been asking from the beginning and continues to ask, do you see me? Because here's why, here's why this is so fundamental and so important. We only exist as selves in relationship to other. Let me back that truck up. You only exist as a person in relationship to someone else. You've heard that, story, uh, that saying, if a tree falls in the forest and nobody's there to hear it, does it really make a sound, right? Does a human being really actually exist if there's no one else for them to relate to? 
you only exist as a self, as a person, as you are reflected back to yourself in the face of another. Rene Descartes, he was a philosopher in the 17th century of the Enlightenment, and he said these famous words that, that, that sort of set the trajectory for a, a three, four hundred year period of, of human history called the Enlightenment. He said, I think, let's finish it, therefore I am, right? Which is essentially to ask the question, how do I know I exist, or how do I know what's real, right? We're talking matrix stuff here. He says, I think, therefore I am. So for him, reason and what happened in his head was the, the proof that I existed. And I want to suggest to you this morning that I think the scriptures say something very different than that. And it's this. I see you, therefore you are. Or you see me, therefore I am. Do you see the difference? We only exist as selves in relationship to another person. And this is why this is so important, this question of do you see me? Because when we're not seen, it's as if we don't exist. It's as if the very God who made us, who put us into this world and in relationship with other people, when that is not affirmed and noted and seen, it's as if we don't exist. I was a kid. I went to St. Anthony Park Elementary School. In this moment is one of the most memorable moments in my entire life, and it's not because it was a pleasant experience. I was in about fifth grade. I had a group of friends that I, I hung out with, and I came from over in the midway right over here, and I bust over to St. Anthony Park. So all the friends that I hung out with were from a different neighborhood, okay? Kind of sandlot things going on here, right? Kid from the other side of the tracks, wants to fit in, but kind of doesn't, and these folks kind of, when it makes sense to them, then we'll let you in, but when it doesn't, we don't, right? So I'm on the playground, and it's springtime. Everything is melting. Like, there is a massive puddle the size of, you know, this lake down here on our playground, and we're all out playing. And I, I, unbeknownst to me, these guys had put together this scheme, this plan, uh, to sort of make an example out of me. I'm just a little tyke, you know, small guy. So these guys, you know, they're like, oh, buddy, buddy with me. And then in this moment, they turn on me, and they grab me, and they carry me over to this mud puddle, and they threw me in the middle of the mud puddle, in the middle of recess. So the entire, I am surrounded by hundreds of people, and nobody sees me. Have you ever been there? And it's in that moment that we come face to face with what does it mean to be human and what does it mean to be in relationship with other people? Does anybody see me? And here's where this makes sense. Here's where this connects to our worship theme. Because we go through all kinds of different things and ways to get an answer to the question, does anybody see me? whether it's sex or relationships or power or money or prestige or position or all kinds of things, and we ask them to see us, and you have to get this. If you get nothing else this morning, get this. In Jesus, God says, I see you. The incarnation is not some bizarre theological thing that happens out here, but when Jesus shows up, God is screaming to humanity, I see you. And I know your name. Worship is about identity, it's about vision, and I would say it's about waking up. This is one of my favorite stories in the whole 
Old Testament. This is Jacob. He's fleeing from, uh, he's kind of in, in between Esau and, and coming back to Ir, Laban and Esau. And he's, uh, he, he camps for the night in verse 10 of chapter 28. It says, Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, which is what I would do, he put it under his head and used it as a pillow and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth and, it, and, and its top reaching to heaven. The angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And there above it stood the Lord and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and of the God of Isaac. And I will give you your descendants the land in which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. You will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. For I am with you and I will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So God shows up in this dream and says some amazing stuff to Jacob. He says, the promises I gave, I will be good on them. And look at Jacob's response. Jacob wakes up and he says, surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. I'm a pastor. I do church stuff. I've been doing church stuff for like 12, all of my vocational life as a professional. And I run with people who do church stuff, church things. I cannot tell you how many times I have been a part of meetings or situations or social settings where somebody says, you wouldn't believe it. It was amazing and God showed up. Or I went to this worship experience and it was like the, the Holy Spirit just showed up in power. It was incredible. Or I went to this place and it was like God wasn't even there. <laughs> Isaiah the prophet says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of your, of your glory. The word glory is kavod and in Hebrew it means weight or significance. So deeply embedded into the Hebrew consciousness is this idea that the entirety of the earth is full filled with God's weight and significance that everything we experience is drenched with who God is. David goes on to say that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And then he says, where can I go from your spirit? It's as if I can't go anywhere where I don't find you. So this, in, in the Hebrew consciousness is this idea that God is present in all of the things in, the, in creation, that God is drenched in creation. God isn't the one that shows up. We do. Jacob has this experience and he says, surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. How many of us have walked through life experiencing this, that, or the other thing unaware of the fact that God is present in these moments? That God is, that, that the weight and the significance, the glory, the presence of God is infiltrated creation. It's not one and the same. We're not talking about pantheism here. But we're talking about the idea that there isn't anywhere we go that then God shows up there. But we talk about this idea that, well, God showed up here or God showed up there. And I want to suggest to you this morning that it's not God that shows up, but it's you. With eyes to see and ears to hear. It's as if our hearts become awakened to this new reality. 
that has been all around us our whole lives. It's like this moment when we experience birth for the, for the first time again, where we become aware of something that we were not aware of previously. And Jacob says, surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. Worship is about waking up to the reality and the fact that God is present in all of the things that we do. When we relate to another human being in coffee, in, in, in having a beer, in eating, in, in being with the person in that moment, that special, beautiful moment in creation when you saw a sunset, in that absolutely tragic, horrible moment when you thought that all was lost and that there was no hope, God was there and God is there. And when you and I begin to wake up to that reality, we can actually respond out of our heart in a way that's worship. Because worship is a response from our heart. It's not something we go to. It's not something that we experience externally. It's a response. It's a way in which we see the world. It's an overflow of what happens here. And so I want to challenge you today. I want to ask you a couple of questions. Do you know your name? It's not until Jacob wrestles with God that he gets who he is and who God's made him to be. Is there anyone here this morning that's walked through their entire life trying to live up to the expectations of this person or that person or this parent or that job or this whatever? And if we got you in a quiet room and asked you point blank, what is your name? You couldn't answer it. And I want to suggest to you this morning that there may be, there may be many options out there for why you can't answer that, but I would say it, I, it's my conviction that it's this one until you wrestle with God, until you come face to face with who he is and who he made you to be, you cannot know who you are. And maybe that's a step you make today. For some of us, we've been living our entire life asking the question, do you see me? We've given ourselves away to all kinds of different things, just begging for somebody to say, I see you. And the story of the gospel is that in Jesus, God, the creator of heaven and of earth and of you, holds your face in his hands and he says, I see you. Is today the day you stop asking all kinds of other things, do you see me? Does anybody see me? Is today that day? And for many of us, we go through life sort of in and out of, of God's presence or, or this awareness that over here I experience God, but over here I don't. And like Jacob, is today a day where we recognize surely the Lord is in this place and I am not aware of it. Where we begin to be awakened to this new reality. We're going to move towards communion. And there are uh, uh, elements on, on some of the tables around here. And I'm going to ask <clears throat> that this morning that you respond however you feel God's spirit prompting you to respond. 
communion is something that Jesus gives to his church and says, do this in remembrance of me. Take this bread, dip it in this cup, and as you do, remember that my body was broken for you, my blood was shed for you, and as you eat of it, remember, recommit, say, I do again, like a bride would say to a groom. And if that's you, if, that's, if you're a part of that community, then this is what this meal means to us. And so take and eat and remember. If you're not a part of a community of faith or you haven't said yes to Jesus yet, then just enjoy the food. There's bread, there's juice, and there's wine. The wine's the darker, the juice is the lighter in the cups on the tables. And as you take communion, there, uh, some of your tables don't have communion. Uh, find a table that does. If you'd like to serve someone else communion, uh, if you came with somebody, a friend, a family member, and you want to do that, then I would encourage you to do that. Because part of, part of being in community is to say to one another, I see you. And this is for you. And this body was broken for you, Micah. And this blood was shed for you, Micah. And your sins are forgiven. And we get to speak that on behalf of Jesus to one another in community. So I'm going to ask Ben uh, to come. And I, I went way longer than I should have, and I apologize. So however you want to orchestrate the next few moments, we'll talk about that later. Um, but I just want to encourage you. Um, if today is a day where you decide that uh, it's, it's time for you to take, to take a step of faith to say yes to Jesus, uh, this, is what, this is a big part of what we do and why we do it. Because we believe something fundamental about Jesus and who he is and what he did on the cross. Um, so respond as you, as you feel led. Uh, um, ben will just play for a moment and maybe as he does uh, we'll just give a moment to think and then I'll, I'll pray and, and we'll take communion together uh, if you want to use the prayer space please feel free so let's pray together if we could God uh, surely you are in this place and sometimes we are not aware of it we're so grateful for who you are, Jesus, for the fact that, that you are in the midst of all of the ebbs and the flows of our journey, the moments when we thought you were gone or that you weren't there or that how could you possibly be in the midst of this pain and tragedy and suffering. I just am convinced that in those moments you are there saying, I see you and I'm weeping with you. God, I pray that as we move towards this table and these elements, that you would continue to make yourself known to us. God, for those of us who have walked through 30, 40, 50 years of our lives not knowing our own names, I pray that you would speak them in this moment. And that you would make very clear to us who you made us to be and what it means to be in connection with you and relationship with you again. God, for those who have been asking in so many different ways, do you see me? pray that today could be a day where we take a step of faith to say, Jesus, I need you to see me. And I receive that today. Thank you for these elements that represent your body and your blood. And we take and we eat of them in remembrance of you, Jesus. Amen. Take and eat. Worship together.